Hey guys, it's Becca Skutak, and you're listening to Found, where we bring you the stories behind the startups. But of course, I'm joined by my fabulous new co-host, Dom. You could just call me Dom. (laughs) Hey Dom, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I feel like I'm like relishing in this nice spring weather we're having in New York. Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. For a second there, I didn't know like if it was going to drop back down to like 30 degrees randomly, but it seems like spring has won. Yes. It does feel like spring is here to stay. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, on this nice spring day, we've got a great episode to bring to you. Today, we're talking to Sarah Sandness, the CTO and co-founder of Safety Wing, which is creating a global safety net for remote workers. The founders of Safety Wing were doing remote work before it was cool and have a lofty goal of creating the world's first fully online country. All of that sounds really interesting, so let's get to it. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Hey, Becca. It's going well. How about you? It's good. Hanging in there. Finally spring here in New York, so can't complain too much. I'm in San Francisco right now. I'm normally based out of New York. Yeah, spending a few days out here. Very nice. Well, we probably should get started the way we generally kick off these episodes. So if you want to start by telling us a little bit about Safety Wing. Yes. So Safety Wing, I have two co-founders. So the three of us started Safety Wing. The first time we sat down was back in 2017. We started as a fully remote company. So at that time, I was in New York. One of my co-founders was in San Francisco and one was in Norway. Our end goal is a global social safety net. What is that, you might ask? So imagine if you had access to, you know, the Norwegian welfare state as a membership globally. So you could, you could just subscribe to that. That includes healthcare, so health insurance, income protection like sick leave and parental leave and pension savings. We're in the situation where, you know, international, living abroad, I was a nomad for a while and I had to give up my Norwegian social safety net and there wasn't really anything that I could exchange it for. Mm. And one of my co-founders, Sandre, who was the one living in San Francisco, he was running a freelancer platform and he saw this from the other side where he wanted to buy benefits for the freelancers on the freelancer platform. And there was just like nothing that existed where they could just buy something that wasn't national, that didn't take the borders into account. So the three of us kept having this conversation about how this is something that should exist. We were all working on, you know, separate things that we thought were important. So we're kind of It was more of like a philosophical discussion and we kind of tried to get other people to start it. But then one day it was just, we just realized that this is so pressing. The world needs this. No one else is doing it. And we just decided to make the leap and sit down and do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's the origin story. That's so interesting too. thinking now it's like remote work has been the conversation for three years. Everyone's talking about remote work as well as sort of these digital nomads. But back when you guys started this company, although this was an experience, as you mentioned, that you and some of the other co-founders were seeing from both sides, this wasn't part of the broader discussion about work or no one even said future of work back then even. Mm -hmm. How did you guys think about that when you were looking to start this company and What was it like building something or getting feedback on this idea, which at the time really was so new? There was definitely a big shift when COVID hit that everyone went remote. You know, that's when it just became fully mainstream uh, because everyone went remote and suddenly it was the, the main discussion point. There was definitely still a movement already happening that we were early adopters of. Otherwise, we wouldn't have started the company if this wasn't something that we thought was a growing trend, a growing need, like where the world is headed. But it was 
more niche. And, you know, just thinking back about, you know, when we were doing our first fundraising and stuff, it wasn't something that you talked very loudly about, the fact that you were a remote company. You kind of had to, like, skirt around it a little bit. But then later, I think it almost seems like companies that aren't remote kind of have to justify why they're not remote. So there's definitely been a huge shift. And the conversation has gone beyond just remote work as well, uh, as we've seen recently with talking about what we've always been talking about, which is like a country on the internet. Mm. And that that's how we think, you know, like with Balaji Srinivasan's book, you know, The Network State. And one of my teammates, Lauren Rizavi's book, Global Natives. We have this next step that we are kind of building the infrastructure for. It's also being talked a lot about. So there's been a huge shift. Very happy to see that. And we hope to be and or aim to be the ones that create the infrastructure that this future needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I'm so curious as to like when you were first fundraising the company, what are some things that investors said to you that might seem weird now that everybody is remote? It's not as much that they would say weird things, but it was just they, they would kind of question I mean, the, the main thing, like question not having an office and like if you can make that work culturally and also you know, hiring from like many different countries, there some fear about like, are you able to make that work culturally? And just this general notion of like how you can't implement controls. It's almost, there was just like a sense of you have to have an office in San Francisco to be like a real Silicon Valley startup, <laughs> uh, which is just no longer there. And take us back to those early days. You guys came to an agreement on this idea. You decided to launch Safety Wing. Obviously, when dealing with benefits and things in that nature, there's a lot of regulations, statewide, company-wide, countrywide. It's just such a huge hurdle and just so much yellow tape to kind of get through. How did you go from idea to starting to actually build the company and sort of navigate some of this more choppy landscape? Yeah, so it's definitely been a multi-step process. You know, here we are six years later from the first day that we sat down in front of our computers. And, you know, that day was a very different day than where we're at now. So we were, like I said, in three different countries. Also, you know, my background is in engineering, but primarily backends. We also had a front-end engineer. So the four of us sat down and we were just like, okay, so we first defined what it is, you know, pension savings, income protection, health insurance, disability insurance based off of the Norwegian social safety net. My co-founder, Sandra, has experience working with specifically the Norwegian social safety net in the parliament. Hmm. So we defined it. And then we were like, okay, so where do we start? And we did based that decision on, you know, what is the most essential part as we decided to start with the health insurance part. And then we didn't know that much about the insurance industry or, or insurance mm-hmm. at that point. So we made a post on Upwork that went something like, looking for a genius insurance expert uh, mm-hmm. to help, uh, you know, revolutionize the world, something like that. And, you know, we got some applications and then there was this one that really stood out with these two business partners that have been in the insurance industry for, you know, many, many decades that were interested. And, you know, we talked to them and we ended up really getting along. They really believed in our idea kept that conversation going and they believed that there was a real market here, a new market, a new global trend. And then we were able to leverage their network. They gave us introductions so that we were able to create the products that we could put live. So one year after we sat down is when we were able to launch that product live. And that was during um, Y Combinator. We went through the winter 18 batch. Mm -hmm. What has been the most complicated market to expand into, especially like regarding healthcare, since every country, especially like the US is so different? Yeah, I mean, so 
the U.S. is definitely the one where it's the hardest for us to launch our own product, but that it's also where we have a very good chunk of our customer base are Americans because a lot of startups are and a lot of remote companies are American. So even though it's complicated in the U.S., it's very well integrated because there isn't that much public health care. So private health care is really, really well established, as complicated as it may be. So a big part of our target market is American companies that have already figured out their um, local plans. But then as they have a globally remote team, they need to offer them benefits as well. And that's what didn't used to exist. But that problem we're solving now. So U.S. is going to be the most complicated to launch our own product, but still a significant part of our customer base. There are also like outlier countries around the world that are trickier. Canada is a big one. They don't use private health insurance in the same way. You can typically only sell them like add-ons or top-up plans. Australia is heavily regulated. There are some outliers, but generally everything is working very smoothly globally. Mm -hmm. No, because it's so fascinating. It's so interesting. I guess like for you as a founder, what has been the most complicated and challenging part of, you know, navigating a company like this, especially through the pandemic and then now out of the pandemic where, you know, remote work is now all the thing. Like what has that been like for you as a founder? Uh, I don't think my story is different from any other founders, particularly. It is, you know, a learning curve. I'd had, you know, jobs before and I'd dabbled in early stage starting companies before. And I'd worked at an early stage startup from seed to series A. So, uh, yeah, and had an internships, you know. So I was like, I knew the startup world pretty well. But, you know, going from four people to 200 people, there are a lot of things that happen and a lot of things that you learn along the way. I would say the most challenging thing is just, you know, you always have to adapt. I remember when I was in the early stage, it was kind of frustrating for me that everyone I knew that are, why, why isn't everyone I know that's smart and ambitious starting a company? Because this is so great. But now that I'm further into it, I realize, okay, this isn't for everyone. It's a thing that's like a little bit hard to specialize in because it's, there's so many different stages and it really evolves. Over time, there are multiple different roles that you end up having, which is challenging, but, you know, I love a challenge. I would say, yeah, learning, management, consequences of your actions, making mistakes and correcting them. Those have been the primary challenges, you know, like any other startup founder that goes through. And I know prior to starting the company, you were a digital nomad and sort of working remotely. I'm curious how you think having your background here, obviously, as you mentioned before, has helped get you guys the idea to begin with. How do you think having that background has helped you navigate building the startup thus far? What are things you would take away from your background that have been positive to implement into the business? And what are things that you learned as digital nomad that you can now like learn from to implement to do a different way through the company? Yeah, I think two things to start with the obvious one. I mean, yeah, I am the CTO. So obviously, everything that I invested in my technical background has become very, very valuable working in multiple different companies, uh, multiple different projects. All of that has been uh, super valuable. And I, I could bring that experience with me seeing mistakes that I've been made and other companies I've been at building the engineering team and building something that has a solid code base, that part. As for the other part, and being specifically a digital nomad, I would say there's this shift, I think, that most people that grow up in one place. I moved from Norway when I was 27 years old. I did an internship when I was a bit younger in San Francisco, but the first time I fully moved out, I was 27 years old. And I imagine that I'm not the only one that kind of goes through this like 
period of almost like detachment or not even detachment, but just like you become a lot more objective to the place where you're from. And it wasn't even that big of a move. I moved from Oslo to London. So in distance, it wasn't far, but it's still very, very different culturally. And then later, you know, I, I lived her in multiple different places and that happened over and over again. This like cultural, almost this feeling of becoming more of like a sponge mm-hmm. and becoming just less set in my ways and seeing how other ways exist around the world. And yeah, I lived in Chile and in Spain for a bit. Then I lived in Berlin. And the biggest culture shock was honestly moving to the US, which is kind of surprising. I'd visited so many times. I grew up with family in the US, so I visited many times and like 20 times before I uh, I eventually moved here. But it was still the biggest culture shock because it just stands out so much from the rest of the world in so many ways. Good and bad, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Good and bad. I'm like, what was it? Like, what was the thing where you were like, oh my gosh, this is so American? What was it? What was the culture shock? Yeah. uh, Okay. So I would say that the biggest one is, and this is very different from Norway and Europe and most other places. Uh, This is my, my theory here is that most other places, like opinions are what you actually think. (laughs) But I think that in America, opinions are kind of used as like accessories to tell people who you are. Ooh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, so so, and that is just like such a shift to start, like in the beginning, you might think that, you know, people are dumb or narrow or, you know, something, something, you know, but obviously people are not. It's just a different culture and a different way of living that has pros and cons. I mean, obviously I choose to live here completely voluntarily and it's my favorite place in the world. And I think it's good to put yourself in an environment where, you know, ambition is celebrated and where there's the ceilings really high or non-existent. And I haven't found that anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And thinking back to when you guys were looking to form the business, how did you meet your co-founders? How did you think about sort of structuring the company based on the strengths that the three of you had? Yeah, so that was definitely part of why we, the three of us came together was specifically, this, you know, we both complementary skill sets and personalities. And so me and the CEO co-founder, Sandre, attended the same program, which is a Norwegian university program that collaborates uh, with international universities. It's called Norwegian School of Entrepreneurship. It's a really, really good program. So we then studied entrepreneurship at Berkeley while working full time for three months uh, as interns in startups in Silicon Valley. I was at Fastly. They IPO'd a couple of years ago now, mm-hmm. you know, when they were like 15 people. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, so so that was a huge leap inspiration, you know, definitely made me ambitious in a way that I hadn't been before. And we were both going through this experience at the same time. And then Hans, third co-founder, is a friend of Sandra from way back. And he happened to be traveling through. He was on like a U.S. road trip kind of situation. So I also happened to meet him at the same time. And, you know, we hit it off as well because he's from the same small town as I am from in Norway. You know, like a a small town of like 20,000 people. Yeah. So we have, you know, a lot of links, like our parents know each other and and that kind of stuff. We hadn't actually officially met before as far as I can remember. But that was funny. They go way back. They used to volunteer together and and, uh, they were at the same political youth party. So Hans's background is as a lawyer and he was working in a fintech startup. You know, me, technical, and Sondre is an economist with a policy background. So really fitting skill sets to start this company specifically. I would say so. Seems pretty complimentary. (laughs) And I'm curious because you guys met one of your co-founders at, like you mentioned, an entrepreneurship-focused program. So Mm -hmm. 
Did you always plan to be an entrepreneur or were you always just sort of interested in the startup ecosystem? It sounds like you intentionally were looking to learn more. So was that always in the plan for you? It was always in the plan. It was just that the ambitions became kind of at a global scale when I spent time in San Francisco. But even, yeah, if you go back, you know, like I I came across like an dummy interview that I did with a cousin of mine from when I was like 12 and I'm still talking about like I wanted to start my own company oh, wow I think I was I always had this like slightly anti-authoritarian streak so I just knew that you know I, I uh, the best way for me is to not have a boss I mean but you still have people now instead you know cater to the users we have investors and it's not like there aren't other stakeholders involved and, and I don't care but uh, yeah it's definitely how I like to do things. What was your your first company idea when you were 12 and thinking about entrepreneurship already? I mean, then it was like, you know, buying stuff at the supermarket and selling it at the school. You know, that, that, kind of, that kind of stuff uh, with a markup and then, you know, gathering other people to, you know, do the same thing. Yeah, it, it was along those lines. But yeah, in Norway, it's strange. You know, I, I think I was like kind of thinking along the lines of creating some kind of like chain because that's what like the most prominent entrepreneurs in Norway are either in the energy industry like oil or shipping or they started various chains yeah mm-hmm. primarily supermarket chains but also like you know flower shop chain or <laughs> these were just like the most prominent entrepreneurs in Norway so you know that's what I thought I would be one day but uh, here I am I'm not creating a chain in Norway <laughs> Yeah, and you've you've mentioned ambition a few times, which is really interesting because a lot of founders that I talk to in Europe also say like the U.S. is the most ambitious place that they've ever seen and that Mm -hmm. a lot of times ambition is not championed in the same ways over there. And so I'm always really curious as to why it's not championed like that. And do you see that element of the culture kind of shifting in the next few years and decades? I do think it is shifting a little bit. So why it's not celebrated more? I mean, there are just cultural trade-offs, you know, like whether a culture is more collectivist or more individualistic, I think, where in order to have a a well-functioning collectivist culture, you need to be able to kind of tame the population a little bit. I mean, not uh, from top down, but just that's how you the social incentives are structured. I can only really talk for Norway in particular, but it's just standing out. It's just it's challenging there. The social incentives are against you. Well, in America, I mean, America is, you know, a big country with many different states and many different subcultures. But generally what I felt in the places that I've lived is that it's celebrated to stand out or to stand out positively is, is celebrated. But yeah, in Norway, you know, both standing out positively or negatively is uh, hard. And you always kind of strive to because the social incentives are there and it's, it's hard to be immune to them. If that's going to shift, there's definitely uh, Sweden and Estonia, you know, you have these countries that have had these very successful, you know, unicorn companies. And I definitely see people that are looking in that direction more so. I do think it would be healthy for everyone to go to, uh, you know, even though I was pretty ambitious at a, a younger age, like it still changed my life when I went to the US and did an internship here. And I think that's something that would be helpful for many people in European countries to see what it's like, to truly experience it and see what it's like. Because similar to what I said about being a nomad, it's hard to imagine how to free yourself from your own culture, you kind of have to experience it to actually do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, OK, so everyone does a U.S. internship. What can Americans learn from doing internships in Europe or in Norway? Yeah, definitely being caring or considerate 
and not bothering other people. That's like a big thing. <laughs> Definitely when I when I go to Norway, it's everything's just like so streamlined and you know, nothing is bothering me. Well in America I feel bothered all the time. <laughs> and that's yeah. So uh, yeah, being um considerate and not bothersome I think is a virtue. You know, humility is you know, they take it too far in Norway, but having a healthy mm-hmm. dose of that. Yeah, I mean, I I am um, I'm pregnant right now, so you know, I'm thinking about raising kids, and ultimately, I think bicultural for me, like American and Norwegian for me in particular. But I mean, yeah, a healthy dose of America mixed with some other culture, I think, is is a good way to get the best of everything. Yeah, I went to Norway with my family maybe about ten years ago, a little over ten years ago at this point, and we were struck by the humility there. It was kind of crazy. We were in a cafe and the woman who was serving us couldn't remember the word for cinnamon in English, which is like, mm-hmm. if you were a, not a native speaker, that's such a random word to know in a different language. And she only apologized 45 times. I mean, I can remember it 10 years later. And I just always thought it was the craziest thing. <laughs> we were like, it's fine. Like, we don't care. But... Yeah. You guys have grown so much over the last few years. I mean, you've only been around since 2018. And obviously, COVID must have been a huge accelerant for that. But maybe if you want to talk about how you guys were able to navigate growth before COVID and what that looked like, and then what happened as we sort of saw this huge change in work and this huge change in where people lived once COVID did happen in 2020. Yes. So one thing that's pretty interesting is the product launch that happened around that time. So as I said, we did launch an insurance product back in 2018, which is travel medical insurance focused on digital nomads. But like since then, or just six months after that, we started working on our next product, which is now live, which went live in March 2020. You know, on March 4th, 2020, I believe was the launch date. Perfect timing. Yeah, that that is a um, health insurance for remote teams. Mm. So the timing for that was just like absolutely insane. So while we we were simultaneously dealing with that product launch and the demand that COVID generated, as well as we had, you know, thousands of customers abroad in multiple different countries that, you know, were thrown into a really a situation that made them really uneasy and, you know, helping them get to somewhere they felt safe or make the right decision for themselves. So it was a very, very crazy, crazy time when COVID first hit for us. And it was kind of two things that happened at once. So we uh, lost some customers to people that went home that used to be nomads and went home. But, but then we gained customers from companies that started going remote and needed to provide insurance for their remote workers and that was you know it was a three-month dip for the consumer facing product for the nomad product and then then it evened out which 30 percent was also a lot less than the travel industry as a whole because a lot of nomads decided to stay and thinking back to that time and sort of how you navigated both that product launch and that huge surge in unrelated demand mm-hmm. would you do anything differently or do you sort of like how your team was able to kind of navigate those huge challenges at once you know i I wouldn't do anything. I mean, it's not like we didn't make mistakes, but, you know, mistakes are some, is something that you learn from. So, you know, say if I did it again today, there were things I would have done differently. But if I went back to the knowledge and time and place there, I wouldn't have done anything differently. Yeah, thinking about it, we did switch insurance partners. Like the first insurance partner didn't work out as well as we'd hoped. And that was like while we had customers that were live with the previous one, you know. So there were just like some hiccups. But that's just, I think that's just like standard product launch stuff. We launch it and then, you know, we fix things. Definitely. Thinking about where we are now with, obviously, COVID still exists, but for a lot of places in the world and a lot of different things, things look back to normal. 
And there's definitely this growing tension, especially if you think about startups specifically, about this whole tension about bringing people back to the office versus letting people still have this remote option. And obviously, we've read the stories on LinkedIn. Oh, my company went remote. I moved five states away. Now they're calling everyone back into the office. And this pull and tug about should workers be remote, should workers not. Obviously, big shifts like that would impact you guys. And I'm curious how you guys are thinking about that type of conversation and sort of how you think that might end up playing out and how you can adjust based on sort of how people end up landing. Yeah. So, I mean, the market is still growing and, you know, we see it as completely inevitable that it is going to be remote just because of all the benefits of having a global labor market versus a local labor market. Like no matter where, you know, the talent density, a global one still has more talent than a local talent market, even compared to, you know, places like New York and San Francisco that are very talent dense. The global market still has more talent. Whoa, whoa, don't tell Silicon Valley that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I mean, would believe in that. Yeah. <laughs> they are included in the globals, you know, according to that Venn diagram. It, it, it's a fact. <laughs> and like one of the very telltale signs is the ratio between the job listings and the applicants that they get. Mm. So currently, 14% of the listings of the US job listings on LinkedIn were um, remote. But they got 52% of the applications that were sent. Mm -hmm. And when we're in a world where companies need talent, this is just an obvious thing that you have to offer in order to actually get talent, because this is what the talent wants. Mm -hmm. And it's also just like, I think there are a bunch of like misconceptions about remote workers and nomads, and you kind of think of it as, it, oh, it's only like, you know, 20s, 30s backpackers. But the trend has completely shifted, you know, about half of nomads now have children. Hmm. Yeah. So it's completely shifted and the world needs to adapt to this or companies need to adapt to this or they will lose out on talent. There's a reason why like jobs that people don't like are paid well, you know, like, for example, I mean, I don't want to, but, you know, like, for example, being a garbage man in New York, you know, I know mm -hmm. that that pays pretty well compared to the kind of training that you need to do. Good pension too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what you do. If you have a job that people don't want, you have to pay a lot extra. Um, you can think of having a non-remote job or only offering non-remote is going to be a lot more expensive, which is going to make it a lot harder for you to compete and won't really work out in the long run. And um, remote work isn't even about saving money, but it's just like, it's specifically about this. If you have to force people to come to the office, that's kind of like a negative on a lot of people's list. So you have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a question about, because you have a flex salary system and don't necessarily pay based on like where employees are located. And I'm really interested about implementing that type of system. And also, how do you take into consideration the cost of living in different places? Yeah, so this one's a big one where we do have a flat salary. We don't care where anyone lives. And you think about it, it's already like this. So, you know, how absurd would it be if you know, a company based in New York paid a different salary to someone living in like, you know, the West Village or, you know, like Bay Ridge. Mm -hmm. it, it would be absurd, you know, like uh, we already have this freedom of like choosing your own cost of living or, you know, like, oh, you spend less money so then you should earn less money. That's usually not how salaries are set. They're not set by your spending. It's set by what you give to the company. So there's just this like, I think it's just something that's lagging behind a little bit because people will take those jobs because they're just used to their local salary level. So they will take a job that pays twice as much, even though the market rate is really higher. But it's just a matter of time before everyone gets this. So, you know, what do we get for being ahead of this is, you know, we do get to get that 
best talent. And the moment someone enters the global labor market this way, that becomes their worth. We're seeing now, I saw a recent statistic about Argentinian software engineering salaries used to be something like 30% or something of, of American, but now they're up to 80%. Mm. So it's already evening out. And we know that that's coming. And you know, if you want dedicated employees, you should pay them what they're worth and pay them what they're worth to you. So based on their output. And another note about your company culture is thinking about you guys all being remote from the start before it was cool. How do you guys navigate working remote in this way? And how have you set up your virtual office and sort of your virtual workflows? Yes, we use a software called Teamflow for our meetings and, and all of that. Which is a, yeah, it has a virtual office, like with a bird's eye view where you have little avatars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've talked to them before and like we met in their virtual office. Oh, yeah. Great. So that's our day-to-day office. Obviously, we use Slack and Notion. So Notion for our weekly, Slack for our daily communication. And then we have set up, I believe every company does this, but you know, we have multiple different types of meetings and ways of working that we have created, like systems. One of them is do this like planning and prioritization sessions where we vote on ideas together. We have uh, something that we call Festivus, which is a Seinfeld reference mm-hmm. <laughs> for the airing of grievances. So once a quarter, everyone gets to say what's going well and what's going not so well. And when we get to like open up all those things that, that happen. So we do all these things that might help an environment that is more output focused and where um, you don't get to have those, you know, water cooler coffee chats as much. We have also implemented something we call coffee chats. So before every Monday meeting, we have 20 minutes of just unstructured where we give a prompt of, uh, of, as a question, sometimes like deeper philosophical, other times like lighter questions, but just so they can go in a little group and just like get to know some of your colleagues. So yeah, sometimes you have to facilitate a little bit of this. And as like a founder and everything, what is it like balancing all of the different time zones of your employees? Mm. What are some tips on doing that? Yeah, so we do have sync time. We're not like a fully async company in any way. And I think for us, it's definitely the right choice. So we have restrictions on time zones and how far east you can go. So we we don't, I think the the furthest east we go right now is Finland. And once it starts going further east than that, then the meeting hours get really uncomfortable. So it's completely okay for people to travel and be there for a short amount of time. But we noticed like the couple of times where we made exceptions, it ends up not really working out when people have to have meetings, you know, from like 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. and things like that. So we just simply restrict the time zone. So we hire, you know, in Europe and Africa and in the Americas primarily. Mm-hmm. And sort of thinking about where you guys are now, knowing you have some additional products in the works, how do you think about the next year, couple of years for safety wing? Yeah, the next couple of years, you know, we have a couple of established products that we're, you know, we have teams that are working on continuously iterating on improving those. And, you know, we still have a roadmap there. But then we have these other products. So our primary focus right now is going to be on the membership portion. So setting up something that we can legally take across borders that will include the benefits, Mm. creating this legal entity. And we have a parallel project to this, uh, which is called the Nomad Border Pass, where we are working on something essentially similar to the Schengen visa, except it's multiple countries around the world, not geographically close to each other, that then will basically have a similar, very similar digital nomad visa. And you can apply for all of them in one go and you can freely move between them. And which it will primarily be, in the beginning, it will primarily be income tested rather than, you know, what citizenships do you originally have, which is kind of the biggest restriction today for moving freely across borders. Mm -hmm. We talk about, you know, strong and weak passports. So those are the main things that we are working on. 
right now. What are some things that you're dreaming about working on mm-hmm. or like markets you want to enter, products you want to build? I mean, our end goal is country on the internet. So, I mean, when will I feel like SafeWing is nearing its completion is when we have that passport. I don't think we will be the only country on the internet, but I do intend for us to be, I mean, we are aiming to be the first. So, um That is, I would say that that is the dream. Giving people around the world access to a passport that will help them get access to wherever they want to go. Mm -hmm. And I think with that, we are just about out of time. But thank you so much, Sarah, for being on the show. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. And hopefully next time we'll be meeting on the country on the internet. Yeah. Country on the internet. I mean, I guess we kind of are. Isn't that what this is? (laughs) Ooh, meta. I love it. Well, that was our conversation with Sarah. Dom, what did you think? The company is so interesting in terms of what it wants to do about being um, kind of the world's first digital country. I know. She just like sprinkled that in at the end. Like that wasn't like a total mic drop moment. She just like razzle dazzled it into the conversation. I was like, ma'am, we should have been talking about this before. I know. Amazing. No, and that's crazy because it is just really interesting talking to someone in the company that's been building remote the whole time. And I mean, I know there are some companies when COVID happened who were like, oh, well, we were already kind of remote to begin with. I mean, like TechCrunch is one of those companies. But this was particularly interesting with like the digital nomad side of it, not just like, oh, our employees are remote, but oh, our employees are remote, plan to stay that way and plan to travel, which I think like the fact that they can bring those experiences to the table in, in building the company was something that I thought was just a really a big leg up from some of the companies that probably had to kind of figure this out when they were forced to when COVID happened. I know. And kind of designing a company that has the infrastructure to support all of these remote employees, but then also offer services to other people who want to do the exact same thing. It was interesting, but also not interesting that the health insurance feature that the U.S. was like the biggest client there. Oh, I know. I was like, oh, that's so, hmm. (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) Yeah, because I feel like with a lot of other countries, it's like if the employees were just living there, even temporarily, they'd have like better access to stuff and like (laughs) wouldn't really need it. But no, because I think that's interesting because I've really found it fascinating watching the emergence of these global focus companies for remote workers over the last few years. And similar to Safety Wing, a lot of them did start before the pandemic. And it's interesting to think about, oh, this terrible global event is what caused your growth to like skyrocket. Like I'm still amazed by those stories three years later because it's never ending, it seems like. No, I know that investors who, if any investors passed on her company, I know that they're just like, oh my gosh, I need to like hit her up immediately. Right. Or that's probably what they were thinking when the pandemic hit because who could have expected or predicted this really? Like it's, When you build a company like this in 2018, you do not expect a global pandemic to shut the world down. Right. And then make your product so like even nine, ten times more viable than before. It's kind of, you know, good timing, I guess, in in an awful sense. But Mm -hmm. you can definitely tell that they've built remote first, at least in my opinion, just based on some of the stuff that they've implemented to make people feel like they're working together in an office. Because I know like that was easily like the hardest transition for me is sort of like missing those, oh, my friend Kyle Campbell and I at my old job at the time sometimes would accidentally talk 
in the kitchen for like over an hour. And like, obviously that was like not great for work productivity, but like you notice that stuff when it's not there. But I thought some of their ideas, like sort of these, the coffee chats before the Monday meetings. So like people can get to like know each other better and also like give ideas. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a square peg going into a round hole. Like these feel like real ideas and like real things you can implement that actually would make things feel casual in a way. Maybe not, but I don't know. They just sounded better than any of the ideas I've come across thus far. No, it really, like, seriously, because, like, I mean, the, the whole airing grievances. Yeah. I'm like, that's kind of what, you know, like, back when I was working in an office, you know, it was like, lunch break, okay, we're all syncing up our lunch schedules so we can go outside <laughs> real quick and, you know, talk. Right. Um, but you know what? I also think that this type of company attracts a certain type of person mm-hmm. in terms of this is the lifestyle that they want. Like, I imagine that the people who work at this company don't necessarily crave that office culture, and they probably don't miss it either. Yeah. Um, and this probably benefits their needs. What was interesting, though, and I want to know your thoughts, it was interesting how she said, even though that there is this stress on everybody is able to work from home and remotely, there are still some places people can't go. And I thought that was really interesting. I know. It's like funny because on the one hand, I want to be like, oh, isn't that so against their mission and sort of what they're building toward? But on the practical side, it's like, yeah, it really is hard if people are like that spread out. Like I know I used to work at a company that was spread between New York the UK and Hong Kong. And it would be like all of the editors were in the UK because during their time shift, they would overlap with each market for one to two hours minimum. But that was like the only way it would work. Like you couldn't be a manager in the US pretty much there because like you would not be able to interact with like a solid third of the company. It's a nightmare. I remember like when I'm in London, my best friend lives in Australia and I just like, I just can't talk to her. Like, because yeah. the, the time difference is so extreme. It's like when I am awake, she's going to bed. And that's literally it. Like, there's nothing I can do about that. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. And at least it sounds like from what she said that it's like if you wanted to say work in Australia for three weeks or something like they're like, that's totally cool. You just can't be based there 100%. So I feel like it does still lean into the digital nomad side. Like people can still move around. They just maybe don't have as much option in like where they can stay like more long term. Yeah. And, you know, I think still it's a very progressive and forward looking policy compared to, you know, a lot of companies now who are like, oh, my gosh, come back to the office. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that really stood out to me was the conversation we had about ambition and ambition of founders oh, yeah. in Europe versus here, which we talk about the European market here as being like, oh, it's a little less mature. Oh, it's a little slower. Oh, it's not as big. But then anytime I actually talk to someone building or who is based in Europe and investing in Europe, they always drop in these like little nuggets that are like much more telling about the culture that we over here are just like looking at the numbers and we're like, well, Europe behind. And they're like, no, literally, it's like why our cultures just like don't celebrate entrepreneurship. They don't, you know, prompt people to want the billion dollar business, the big IPO. Like that's just not the type of people the culture fosters. Literally, what she was saying um, has verbatim been told to me by so many European founders, especially the whole like success is not celebrated. Mm -hmm. And obviously, like coming from the US, I'm like, that's all we talk about is success, you know? And so to hear that it's like a complete just flipped out out in Europe is so interesting to see because I'm like, how? I know. Ambition is not celebrated. You know, success is not celebrated. It's like I think she said it was bad to, like, stand out. And the U.S. is so individualistic that it's like, oh, my gosh, I couldn't imagine just not 
even like having an investor like shoot my idea down because it's just it's like, no, I don't know. I don't know how that works. I don't know how it even goes. I know. It's just always so telling. And it also just speaks to like the way we are here that we were like, oh, yeah, numbers are bad. Europe's this. And you talk to people there and they're like, nope, that's not why. Like, that's how you would view it as an American, obviously. Or what if we're looking at it weird and it's like instead of championing just always working in success, what if they're just always like, let's like calm down for a minute and be like really chill and just, I don't know, live instead of grind all day. Oh, I know. I don't know. But also, again, I wouldn't know. Right. Would love to. <laughs> I would love to. If anyone wants me to test it out, I will go to Europe <laughs> for six months. Oh, I know. <laughs> test it out. Almost like there's benefits in giving up the personal potential to have a billion dollar exit tied to your name for like social services and the common good. <laughs> but that's what she said is there are sacrifices that you make in living in a culture that's, you know, I guess she called it collectivist. Yeah. And I, I, I love how the sacrifices was like social safety nets and stuff. I know. I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, maybe I do want that. <laughs> like, I was like, I, I was like, I'm listening. You no, know, because I, I loved how she said the best, like the best way to do it is best of both worlds. Like right. U.S. citizenship and another country. And then that's it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I mean, hopefully if the company reaches their goal and creates the first country on the Internet, we will all be living online and we'll have to see what that looks like. That'll be so... Who's the president of our online country? Oh, God. I don't even... Like, <laughs> Doge or something. Like, that'll just, like, make me mad. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That'll be... That'll be something to, I guess, watch out for. Mm-hmm. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skuta, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori-Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>